Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. We have a very exciting episode for some of you, and I think commercial beekeepers will really enjoy this one, too. So our first segment is with Dr. Josette Lewis, and she is with the California Almond Board. She'll be discussing how the Almond Board serves beekeepers, landowners, and all of the above. And our second segment, we'll have Sarah Stern from Concord Farms in Wisconsin coming to talk about her life as a commercial beekeeper and some of the logistics of pollination and just being a beekeeper in general, commercial beekeeper. Finally, we're going to finish off with a question and answer, and we're going to call it Stump the Chump, not Chump the Stump, which I call later on. Enjoy. Hey guys, thanks for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. In this segment, I'm Jamie Ellis, accompanied by Amy Vu to, to co-host this segment. Hey Amy, again. Hi, again, and every other segment, almost. <laughs> That's right. It's it's always nice to have you there because you're you're the co- comedic relief. Oh, thank you. You're supposed to say something <laughs> funny just, in response to that. Oh, you I kind should. of flamed out. My bad. Anyway, Amy, this is going to be an exciting segment because we are going to be discussing um, pollination of almonds in California. It's a big topic for commercial beekeepers all around the United States. And in fact, when I travel overseas, a lot of beekeepers and scientists and colleagues overseas, you know, try to find out how American beekeepers do this. We, we move our bees thousands of miles for this particular crop. And, and really to have this discussion today, we're very privileged to have uh, Dr. Josette Lewis, the Chief Scientific Officer for the California Almond Board with us in this segment. Hello, Dr. Lewis. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Great to talk to you from California. Absolutely. No, so just for the listeners, <laughs> uh, um, assurances here, you know, we, we, Amy and myself, we're on the Eastern time zone and we're at 10 o'clock, 10, 11 or so mm-hmm. on the day that we're recording this podcast. But Dr. Lewis is so dedicated to beekeeper education. <laughs> she's joining us three hours behind us. She's currently living in the past. So at 7, 11 <laughs> in the morning and, and she's joining us. So thank you so much for getting up early and, um, and joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. My pleasure. You know, farmers usually get up early, so it's not unusual. (laughs) In fact, they've probably all been up hours earlier than us even still, right? (laughs) All right. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So we we actually have a lot of great questions for you, so we appreciate having you on this podcast. I'm just going to start off, you know, at the very beginning. What what is the California Almond Board? What is it? What does it do? What's its history? Sure. So we are... uh, started in the early 1970s. We are a federal marketing order under the auspices of USDA. Uh, The USDA provides uh, several different mechanisms by which growers can collaborate and fund um, research and general marketing of their commodities. Um, And so that is the, the system by which the Almond Board of California was created in the early 1970s. Uh, we are funded by growers voting to assess um, a fee on their um, production in order to fund the research and marketing of almonds. Uh, so we are grower funded and we're a nonprofit under the kind of umbrella of USDA. Well, that's interesting. Let me ask a question about that because, you know, obviously we have beekeepers sure. who want to pursue beekeeper related research, but we don't have a similar system in place for, for, for beekeeping. So how, how is it grower funded? Is there a percentage of their production? And you said the growers vote to do this. Is this something that could go away tomorrow if the grower said enough's enough? I mean, how, 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 yes. yeah, you, you take that, yeah. <laughs> take those, take those questions and let's see. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there there's a vote every five years, hmm. um, and I believe two thirds of the almond farmers in California, well, because all the almond farmers are in sure. California, two thirds of the farmers have to vote in favor of continuing the assessment and have to vote in 
in, in essence, to continue the Almond Board of California. So we just had the last vote last year, and I think uh, about 90, wow. somewhere over 95% of the growers voted in favor wow. of continuing the Almond Board. Well, that's pretty, I mean, um, you guys clearly, is, are, um, I was going to say you're clearly successful because you've been around since the 70s, mm-hmm. right? So they, they must have a lot of faith yes. in you. Yeah, and the industry has changed a lot in that period of sure. time. Uh, big expansion of acreage and um, a lot more emphasis on marketing of almonds around the world. So uh, the industry has become both bigger and um, more sophisticated and a lot of emphasis not only on how to grow almonds profitably and sustainably, but also how to make sure there's high quality markets for all of those almonds in a variety of different products well, around the world. Well, let me ask one more question then about the structure. How, how many of you are there? I mean, so what, what is this funding support? What's the staff size and yeah, things so like the, that? Sure. The staff of the on board is just a little over 50 people. Wow. Um, so, uh, several of those uh, overseas. Uh, we have substantial marketing programs in Asia and um, Europe. So we have a mm-hmm. couple of staff people overseas. Uh, most of them are here in Modesto, California, which was the headquarters of the Almond Board. And the way we operate is we actually rely a lot on volunteers from the industry. Um, so those growers who pay the assessment, as well as other professionals that provide services to growers, uh, folks in the, involved in the processing of almonds. We have three different sort of big segments of our industry. We have farmers. We have huller shellers. That's kind of an intermediary processing step. The name is pretty clear what it's doing, taking the hull <laughs> off and shelling the almonds. And then we have handlers who actually further process the almonds and sell them into the market, either into food companies or into branded products. Um, so we have over 150 volunteers from the industry That's that right. help um, serve on committees and working groups that helps us prioritize how we make investments um, of those grower dollars to help serve the benefit of the whole industry. Wow, that's so. In addition to the staff, yeah. we have a lot of great volunteers from the industry who help uh, make sure that we're um, keeping California almonds at the in a global leadership position and um, making sure it's both a profitable and a sustainable crop. That's amazing. It, it you know you kind of don't think about just I mean marketing being one whole segment of the entire industry you know like I, I don't think people really think about that that often um, but it sounds just really amazing what you guys are doing you know for the growers and so do, do you work a lot with beekeepers you know how how can we kind of tie this together so what relationship do you have with um, you know with growers you have but you know with also beekeepers mm-hmm. how do you kind of tie that together yeah well, bees are essential uh, to getting almonds. Every almond you eat is because a bee helped pollinate that almond blossom early in the year. Um, so they're an essential part of our industry. Um, and we have quite a lot of focus um, to make sure we have good relationships with the beekeeping industries um, and with um, beekeepers themselves. In fact, we have a pollination and Bee Health Working Group uh, that is um, helps us decide our priorities for funding bee research. And we have beekeepers who are part of that uh, working group to make sure that whatever we do serves the needs of beekeepers um, as an essential part of our industry. We are members of a number of beekeeping organizations from California State Beekeepers to the American Honey Producers and the American Beekeeping Federation. Uh, the Honeybee Health Coalition is another we're member of that. So we participate in most of the national bee meetings um, and uh, really try to make sure we have a good dialogue with both the beekeeping industry as a whole, but also with individual beekeepers who um, can be important sounding boards and advisors to the Almond Board as we look to create um, a positive uh a positive working environment for both beekeepers and almond growers, as well as a positive environment for honeybees to flourish when they're in almond orchards. Yeah, as a faculty member and a scientist, one of the things I appreciate most is you guys fund research, and it's a, a beekeeper research, which is a little kind of novel if you think about it, because, yeah, I mean, yes, bees are directly important to your um, um, crop, but I can't really think of any 
crops outside of almonds that actually fund something that's that's related to bees you know usually it's Mm -hmm. almost always crop first and yet we can get into the argument that almonds need bees so it is crop first in this case but usually it's nutrition for the crop or water for the crop or growing conditions or breeding i mean but you guys are essentially for you know funding something outside of almonds because almonds do it i guess my point is is you don't see watermelons doing that and blueberries doing that and things like that but you do see almonds so i think that's neat what what amount of funding is available for bee research, specifically for honeybee research, um, every year? You, you mentioned funding projects. So what, what level of funding and approximately how many projects do you fund every year? So the level varies, I'm sure, from year to year. Um, you know, this is I'm actually just concluded my first year with the Almond Board, so I have to kind of think back um, in history. I think the, you know, the number of projects and the total amount of funding has varied depending on um, the scope of challenges that we're addressing. So, you know, at some point during the Varroa, the the early days of the Varroa crisis, I'm sure we were funding even more work on on Varroa than sure. we are today. Um, so, I would say on and on average, in any one year, we probably have about four or five different research projects going on specifically in the area of bee health. Um, and the total amount of funding is probably highly variable from, I don't know, 100000 to $400,000 a year of ongoing research at any one time. Um, so it is certainly, it has probably, it's one of the longstanding components of our research portfolio, as you mentioned, where um, a big funder, I think, we, well, I know we are the largest uh, commodity group, agricultural commodity group to, fo- to fund bee research. And um, we also do a lot to try to coordinate that research with other organizations that fund research. So we um, have uh, actually at the end of this month, a meeting that we're co-hosting with Project APIS-M, another great organization that funds bee research um, to bring together some of the the beekeeping uh, organizations that, that also fund research with their uh, membership dues. So California State Beekeepers, American Honey Producers, American Beekeeping Federation, um, as well as folks like USDA and EPA, um, we're going to host a co-host a two-day meeting to talk about what are the joint priorities and how can we better um, collaborate. Maybe even do some joint calls for proposals um, to make sure that we're really leveraging and getting the greatest uh, impact for beekeepers um, from the research that we fund. Yeah, and we hear a lot about yeah, I think that's great. the importance that beekeepers want to have, they need some solutions today while we work mm-hmm. on the solutions of tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I think we could, we're hoping at this meeting to also sort of look at how can we really speed up the translation of research, maybe fund some really short-term things that can give beekeepers practical solutions while tackling these bigger challenges over time. I think that's great. You know, it's cool that you guys work together. I know this, is, I don't want to interject a sour note. One, one of the difficulties I have is I'm not even able to apply for funding from any of the agencies you mentioned. Our university doesn't allow us to mm. p- apply for funding if indirect costs um, um, are mm. not permitted. And almost all grower groups that you've said um, don't permit indirect costs. So, so not all universities are able to take advantage of the the great funding sources that you guys are and so i don't know i, I think you guys do great work well, I, I just wish i had your sponsored program yeah on well you know it's the, I, I can tell you with certainty <laughs> it went when that came down to us there was a, a uproar but to no avail if the the university's yeah. stance is, is if we don't get 12 percent indirect cost then it's costing the university to do to do the project and none of none of those agencies permit that. So, so I'm glad that mm-hmm. others are able to tap into it. But there are at least a few of us who cannot utilize the resources that you guys are able to provide. But that's, well, that's sound, that. yeah, that we sounds like a sour note. But, country, <laughs> yeah, so. you guys do a great job. That's certainly not a knock. It's just it's just me yeah, saying I regret yeah. that we're unable here at the University of Florida to take advantage of that. Yeah. So, Josette, you're kind of talking about the research that you guys get to do. We. Um, posted on our social media pages asking people if they had questions. A lot of the questions actually you might be able to answer just as far as maybe what research you guys are doing or, you know, what you've been able to fund. But it, it is a lot about colony health and the bees. So I'm, I guess mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. question is about transportation and disease and pests. Is that something that you guys work with? Sure. We have funded quite a lot of 
research, particularly around pest and disease management for beekeepers. So this is really 100% geared at the beekeeper side of it, not mm-hmm. so much in the almonds. Um, we do fund, um, in that area of research, we funded quite a lot of research on varroa mites to try to understand um, uh, you know, how the life cycle of a varroa mite in a hive and what does that tell us in terms of potential control strategies, um, funding research on different control mechanisms, um, and development of best management practices for varroa control. We're currently funding a project at Washington State University um, on using cold storage um, at different times of the year to bake, break the brood cycle and use that as a uh, an added mechanism to control varroa mites, as well as potentially keep some costs down, it looks like. Um, so other areas of research beyond um, pest and disease, we've funded quite a lot of research to understand the impact of different um, agricultural chemicals on bee health. Mm-hmm. Um, the research that we have ongoing in that area is with Reed Johnson at Ohio State. Um, and we have um, used that research to really um, increase our messaging um, to uh, farmers and pest control advisors that farmers hire, pesticide applicators, um, to increase our messaging um, around not using insecticides during the bloom season. There's there's no significant insect pests in almonds this time of year. So uh, we have seen in Reed's work um, almost a 70% reduction in insecticide use in almonds in the last few years since we released, released best management guide, best management practice guide for almonds. So that's a great win, but we're now increasing our messaging around caution around use of adjuvants. Um, which Reed has shown there are some categories of adjuvants. Other researchers have shown that as well. So increasing evidence that adjuvants can pose a risk to bee health. So as we led up to bloom season this year, we have a lot of bees in our orchards right now. We've been um, very directly messaging um, to growers and pesticide applicators to be cautious and not add adjuvants unless they're absolutely called for on the label. Um, so Reed Johnson's work, as well as others before him, have been really fundamental to our development of the best management guide for um, bee health in almonds. And um, that's a big part of the outreach that we do to growers to make sure they are communicating with beekeepers, um, making sure whoever they hire um, to work in their orchards, uh, for example, um, people who might be applying fungicides, uh, are using the best practices of applying those late in the day or in the evening when the bees are no longer active in the orchard, uh, making sure that they're uh, following California state laws and so forth. So uh, that research really has been the foundation of our outreach to growers and beekeepers to make sure that both parties are creating as uh, positive an environment for both pollinating almonds and making sure bees stay healthy in our orchards. You know, I think this is a perfect model for how problem solving should occur in agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. You've got you've got an industry that says, you know, we've got these issues that we need to address and we're not just going to tell you to go address them. We're actually going to support you addressing them, you know, the fun research. And not only do they fund the research, but when the research is done appropriately and correct, they believe the research mm-hmm. and they change their management practices to reflect the findings of that research. And then you get things like 70% reduction in, you know, pesticide use, for example, or whatever, whatever all the benefits that you just noted were. I think this is a great model uh, for other industries to follow. I think this is a good example. And I certainly applaud the California Almond Board for doing that. Thanks. Through groups like the Honeybee Health Coalition, we've also been working with some other commodity groups and trying to really use that model um, of developing best management practices and doing outreach to our growers to make sure that we all work toward um, having a healthy uh, environment for both managed bees, honeybees, as well as native pollinators. A lot of these same um, practices will benefit native pollinators as well. And I would say that's an, a new area of focus for us that we're ramping up as well, um, trying to make sure that not only do we have a great environment for honeybees, because 
we rely on them, but also for native pollinators during the rest of the growing season. But yep. those bees leave our orchard and in another month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to make sure they go on to healthy places after they leave almonds. Sure. That we are only a one stop in the lifestyle and the life uh, cycle of a of a hive. Yeah, I just want to point out to our listeners before Amy asks you a, a, another question, but I want to point out to the listeners how many times you'd mentioned partners, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Collaborators, the Honeybee mm-hmm. Health Coalition, the beekeepers, government, uh, industry, almond growers. You mentioned Project APSM, the National Honey Board, American Beekeeping Federation, others. The reason I think this is important is because we're not going to address these big issues by ourselves. Sure. It has to be done collaboratively. We have to build a level of trust between the organizations, the groups, and the industries. We, you know, when we need we need to find common goals, and we need to address those common goals head on. And I think this is best done as a group. Um, we get synergy that way. And I think we actually find answers and solutions that way. So I think this, again, you know, I've said it before just recently, but I think this is another good example of the, a model, right, um, industry. And, and I kind of chuckle because it's the almond industry, right? You know, there's, <laughs> I'm grateful to the almond <laughs> right. industry for including us in, <laughs> in this process because, you know, certainly there are lots of other crops that are dependent on honeybees. And in our own industry, you know, we could probably do better as an industry to support research and outreach as well. But anyway, Amy's got some burning questions. Yeah, I do. I do have a question right. and it's basically, well, we, we've been seeing a lot on social media about how almond milk and the almond industry is actually worse you know, than we think it is. And so I wanted to talk to you about that. And I didn't know if it was a touchy subject or not, you know, but I'm seeing articles saying, well, your almond milk is killing all the bees and it's it's really bad. And, you know, commercial beekeeping and migratory beekeeping is horrible. And so can you talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. Well, we do take really seriously the how consumers perceive the quality of almonds, not just in terms of how good they taste and how good they are for you, but also the quality of how they're grown. So um, we do take a lot of uh, responsibility for, um, for bees and for making progress on continuing to improve um, the way we grow almonds. But I, I think the, the accusation that, that um, sending bees into an almond orchard is like sending them into war um, is is frankly a, a gross overstatement. I mean, we have um, good data that shows that we have significantly improved the quality of the environment for bees when they come into almonds. Um, as I stated earlier, we've um, since releasing the best management practice guide in 2014, we've seen almost a 70% reduction in insecticide use. Um, we have the uh, voluntary program we call the California Almond Sustainability Program, and this is a way for growers to assess their sustainability of their practices. And we have almost a quarter of the industry participating in this program. Um, and those growers report that they are following these bee best management practices. So if they have to use a fungicide, they apply it um, late in the day, uh, in the evening, even sometimes at night. Uh, so as to avoid exposure to those bees. So, you know, the evidence is that we're making great progress and that by and large bees uh, flourish when they come to almonds. Many beekeepers report that their hives are much stronger when they leave almonds than when they go in at the beginning of the year. Um, Almond pollen, we know um, through research, provides really good nutrition for bees. Um, and so that's part of how uh, these hives come out stronger from an almond orchard, not weaker. Um, and I think, you know, you made the point, Jamie, um, that we all have to work together because bees are only in the almond orchard for maybe two months out of the year. Sure. And where they go from there needs to be equally a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really trying to work through these national partners and whether they're beekeeping organizations or research organizations, um, trying to work with other commodity groups to make sure that when almonds, when bees leave almonds, they go to a good quality environment. Um, Increasingly, there's a lot of research showing that access to good nutrition and forage um, when they are in other parts of the country is really critical to having healthy hives. and of course, we know that varroa mite can come up at any time of the year. So that's an, uh, an area where we need vigilance by beekeepers. So 
I think it's um, we we take responsibility for bees, as you've noted. We we are are very much engaged uh, in this industry as a key part of of our uh, stewardship of um, resources, and so we take that responsibility quite seriously. And um, I think we've shown a lot of progress um, in 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 improving and making sure there's a healthy environment for bees. Yeah, so I want I do want to acknowledge some of the listeners that we have and some of the followers and some of their questions. So I do have uh, just a couple of questions for you from the mm-hmm. audience. Um, so you've kind of touched base on this, but what steps you know might beekeepers put in place to to keep farmers from applying fungicides or herbicides or pesticides during that pollination period? Yeah, so uh, there's. We approached this a couple of ways. One is that here in California, there are two laws that help make that communication, that are aimed at making that communication better. So in California, beekeepers are mandated to register the location of their hives uh, when they bring them into the state or if they, they are resident in the state, they have to keep an updated location. And they can do that through calling a county ag commissioner or we have supported uh, an app and a web-based application called Beware that's done through um, a commercial uh, (laughs) software provider. And Beware makes it easier for beekeepers to register their hives and comply with that state requirement. On the other side of the equation here in California, um, pesticide applicators, whether that's the farmer themselves or someone they hire, are also mandated by law to give beekeepers 48 hours notice if they're going to apply a chemical that could have a negative impact on bee health within a one mile radius of those hives. Mm. So both sides, the beekeeper and the farmer are required by law to communicate. Uh, We also, as part of our best management practices and all the outreach we do to growers, um, really emphasize this communication chain. That's absolutely essential. It has to be good communication when a grower signs a contract with a beekeeper or mm-hmm. shakes hands and uh, agrees on a fee, if that's what it is, to really communicate what their plans are. Um, if, they're, if they already have mapped out what their um, orchard management is going to be excuse me, during bloom time, they should really communicate if they plan to apply any chemicals. Um, so we, we really emphasize that communication chain Again, between a farmer, a pesticide applicator, a beekeeper, they all need to be communicating with each other down to who's going to change the bucket of water uh, that we advocate um, the farmer provide next to those hives to keep the bees well hydrated. Someone needs to go in and change that water um, after any chemicals are applied. So we have quite a lot of Uh, specific guidance that emphasizes that communication, as well as uh, state laws here in California that are aimed at um, ensuring we don't get um, pesticide application on hives. Sure, great. Well, let me let me ask you another question that was um, posited by a a listener. So we've been talking a lot about honeybees and rightly so because they're the coolest bees on planet (laughs) Earth. However, one of our (laughs) listeners asked, do other um, bees or other pollinators pollinate almonds? Certainly, um, there are native uh, native bees and native pollinators here, bees in particular here in California. However, they're not a major part of almond pollination. I think some of the native bees don't um, become active as early in the year as honeybees do, um, depending on probably where they are in the state. So we have very long state, so there's quite a bit of climate variation. Um, and the sheer numbers of almond trees versus native pollinators are such that we do rely on honeybees to pollinate the crop. Um, but we are very um, aware of the importance of native pollinators, not just to almonds, but to the environment and the ecosystem more broadly. And as part of our um, accelerated push to create um, a good environment for all pollinators, we are now um, really emphasizing to growers the importance of planting cover crops and hedgerows to provide additional forage and habitat for native pollinators. So we have been talking with the Pollinator Partnership. 
um, and uh, Project APSM and others uh, in the conservation community about how we could work together to expand habitat and forage for native pollinators throughout the year, not just um, the time that almonds provide great forage for honeybees early in the year. So we are very interested in using our orchards to try to expand opportunities and habitat for native pollinators as well. Yeah, sure. And that's kind of a consistent thing that we're seeing with a lot of other crops. We know that, um, you know, this this wildflower plantings have been very popular, mm-hmm. especially in the last mm-hmm. decade or so. We were involved in some work, you know, five or 10 years ago. We don't do quite as much of that in my lab anymore. But um, certainly it's been an emphasis of research programs around the country. And there's a lot of papers coming out about that stuff. Well, Dr. Josette Lewis, I really appreciate you joining us. You have been a wealth of information on commercial beekeeping and almond production and the interaction between the two. Um, Dr. Josette Lewis is the Chief Scientific Officer for the California Almond Board. Thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Well, thanks. It was a great opportunity. And have a great day from the the past here on the West Coast to those of you in the future on the uh, Absolutely. He, he, he got that joke from me, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that was the last week joke, but uh, I was impressed with Amy doing so I'm doing it, so I, I kept that one in my pocket. Look, you, you know, this is going to be an incredibly popular topic. Mm-hmm. Is, is it okay if I reserve the right to come back uh, and interview you in the future? You bet. Well, you thank bet. you so much. There's thank always you, more thank to you. talk about with these. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you now. Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. Hey everyone, we're here with Sarah Stern from Concord Farms and Jamie, I'm gonna let you guess the accent. Say that. Well, that's a guess the accent. That. All right, speaker, Sarah. <laughs> Good say morning, that. everyone. Good morning. Say accent. Accent? Okay. I don't think I have an accent. That- I feel like people on TV talk like me. <laughs> well, Sarah, well, they don't, Sarah. They don't. <laughs> Sarah is <laughs> Sarah is from Sullivan, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Hey, you didn't let me guess. Oh my gosh! Well, too bad. But you know, as a little unfo- anyway, I we knew, have to get the ball I rolling. I knew in Jamie. advance where she was from. However, <laughs> she she you sound like you're from Wisconsin. I was in Wisconsin back in November of 2019. So just last year, for the listener's sake. But I say the year because I don't know when you're actually listening to this podcast. But I was there, and everyone sounded like you. Everyone from Wisconsin sounded like you. Let's put it that way i'm i'm i will say i'm very jealous i'm from kansas and i have no accent so i wish i were you guys <laughs> all right let's get back to the podcast and yeah, questions we that we have beans, so <laughs> sarah is a commercial beekeeper at con and and the owner of concord farms and i actually heard her uh during a panel at the american beekeeping federation and so the panel was about next generation beekeepers and i want to say that that was probably the most useful panel that I've ever been to as far as commercial beekeepers and beekeepers in general. And I know that I wasn't the only person that felt that way. So we really wanted to bring you on to the Two Bees in a Podcast just to ask you some questions about migratory beekeeping, maybe some of the logistics. And so I guess my first question for you, Sarah, is how did you get started in commercial beekeeping? Uh, So I married into this lovely operation. Um, By trade, I'm actually a registered nurse. So that's what (laughs) I did before I became a beekeeper. It's not too late to go Uh, back. (laughs) But yeah, kind of an unlikely scenario. But uh, when I met my husband, we um, he took me out into the bee yard pretty much immediately. And since my background, I came from a farming background, um, growing up on a hobby farm. And I just really kind of took to it right away. I found the bees very interesting. Uh, So it was a pretty natural transition for me to leave my job as a nurse and dive in headfirst into commercial beekeeping. So you said this is a family business. How, How many generations has your husband's family been doing it or is he the first generation? We're actually first generation wow. beekeepers. Wow, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. When it started, it was my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. It was a hobby of theirs. Hmm. And my husband actually wanted nothing to do with it. He thought <laughs> that was the dumbest idea. Why would you want to keep honeybees? And then as they had them um, for several years, he really saw the value in having them around. So when his brother lost interest in them as a hobby, he picked it up and 
decided to keep the bees on their property. And he just really has the mindset that if you're going to have 10 hives, you might as well have 20. And if you have 20, you might as well have 100. And um, at this point, we manage about 1,600 colonies. Um, and so it's definitely, we've grown fairly rapidly. We started our business. Um, he incorporated his business in 2007. Um, but wasn't doing it full-time until 2012. Um, so over the last eight years, we've grown it from 400 hives to the 1,600 that we're currently managing. Is it just the two of you managing the, the bees or do you guys have staff as well? We have part-time employees okay. that help us out. Um, but as far as full-time, it's just him and myself. Yeah, you know, I've, I've worked with commercial beekeepers for a very long time, and, and they will all tell you slightly different answers, but from my outside perspective, the, the average commercial beekeeper by himself or herself can manage somewhere between 700 and 1,200 colonies. I've, I've seen an individual manage as many as 1,200 and, and then and down. So I was thinking with the two of you, you probably needed a little bit of, of part-time help to be able to manage those 1,600. It's interesting. Yeah, especially because um, the honey producers aren't the only thing that we have going on. We also do a queen program all summer okay. long, too. So wow, um, that's kind of separate from the 1600 that are the production colonies. It's neat that this kind of came up as a as a hobby of a relative rather than, you know, family, because usually these commercial beekeeping groups are dynasties, right? It's someone whose kids kind of reluctantly take it over and then love it and embrace it. And mm -hmm. then their kids reluctantly take it over and love it and embrace it. And so I think these days we're getting a lot more commercial beekeepers like like you guys, where you're coming in kind of from the outside and growing your operations. In many ways, I think that's cool because you don't have any of the preconceived notions mm -hmm. about bee management. And, and I think that that allows kind of a novel look and a novel approach to kind of commercial beekeeping. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about just your business strategies? And, you know, you talked about queens, but you guys are migratory. Is that is that right? Uh, at this point, we still are migratory. So um, we have been migratory since I um, came into the picture of this uh, when in 2012 when I met my husband he was shipping his bees to Arkansas uh, to overwinter them and then he was shipping them back to Wisconsin to do honey production for the summer um, at this point uh, we've kind of shifted our focus a little bit uh, in hopes to eventually become unmigratory, which is a kind of another unheard of yeah, facet sure. in commercial beekeeping sure. these days. At this point, most people are trying to figure out how to live the migratory lifestyle or how to become migratory. They're seeing other commercial beekeepers doing that and being successful with that. Um, so I feel like a lot of people, especially sideliners, um, they are definitely kind of throwing that out there as an option. You know, how do I get into that migratory lifestyle and how do I get my bees moving um, across the country. So I kind of diverged there, but I'll go back. So currently we um, run our bees in Wisconsin for uh, honey production. We do our queen program here. We're currently overwintering a third of our operation in Wisconsin. The other two thirds goes to California at this point to do almond pollination and then they come back to wisconsin in march uh, for us to get started again with our honey season here so we've cut out one state um, like i said we used to go to arkansas to uh, overwinter there that was our main objective and then when that went really well we started producing nukes uh, that we sold both in arkansas and wisconsin um, so Right before we sold our Arkansas operation, we were making about 3,000 nukes in the springtime uh, so that we could uh, have the bees for ourselves, but then also sell about 1,000 nukes. So you, you were pollinating in California, you're honey producing, you're you were making nukes, you're doing queens. Let's, let's talk just briefly about the migratory part before we transition to why you're moving to a stationary operation. When you... So you're relatively new. You're out pollinating almonds in California. Was it difficult to to get into almond pollination? I mean, how, how did you make that happen? 
Yeah, no, it was not difficult at all. Hmm. Uh, we made some connections at an ABF conference uh, with some other beekeepers who uh, were currently doing almond pollination. They run a very successful operation. Right now they have about 12,000 colonies. So our first year of um, almond pollination in California, we ended up using the same broker that they did. Okay. Uh, and so that first year that we went out to California to do the almond pollination, we shipped our bees from Wisconsin to Arkansas. We graded them in Arkansas, which was really nice because we could cherry pick the best of the best to send to California. Um, they shipped out of Arkansas in the very end of January, went straight into the orchards where they were gonna do the pollination. Um, they were there for about six weeks and then they shipped them back to Arkansas so that we could split them and make our nukes and um, all of our divides there. So that route worked really well because again, we were able to grade them in a warmer temperature. We could really see what we had so that uh, we knew that we were going to get paid pretty much on a hundred percent of that load because sure. they were going directly into the orchard right at the time of the pollination. So they weren't sitting in a holding yard. They weren't sitting in a wintering shed. Um, we've done pretty much every scenario for almond pollination. We did two years where we shipped them out of Wisconsin to Idaho to sit in the sheds. Then they would go from the overwintering sheds in Idaho straight into the orchards and get placed um, for the pollination. And then when that was done, um, they would either head back to Arkansas so we could make our divides or they would head to Wisconsin from there. And then this year was our first year that we shipped right from Wisconsin to California. And they sat in a holding yard uh, for about two months. And then they're now in the orchards right now getting ready to do the uh, pollination. So I think I think it's all really neat. I mean, you you guys jump right in. And so, you know, Amy was telling, and we've kind of teased us a little bit, you're, you're talking about transitioning away from migratory beekeeping. So when I talk to a lot of commercial beekeepers, they almost treat, you know, California as, as kind of um, business insurance. Like you've got to go make some money because mm -hmm. if the rest of the year you fail to make nukes or fail to get a good pollination contract with watermelons or you fail to make honey, you've at least got California, right? So you diversify to spread the risk. But you guys are talking about transitioning to stationary. What's some of the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so there's a bunch of factors that play into that. Sure. Um, for us, most importantly, it's our family. Yep. Uh, we have two small children. Uh, they're three and five, so they're going to be starting school here shortly. And um, we, I have aging parents also who mm -hmm. are getting to the point that they could use a little bit more help. So that is, a, for us, it's our number one reason why we wanna get off the road. Um, it helps, I actually like my <laughs> husband, so yeah. I like having him home. Yeah, sure. um, <laughs> that's kind of, I, you know, that's sort of a novelty, I guess, especially, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things for commercial beekeepers, it can be challenging in that respect if you, enjoy your spouse they typically you either tend to travel together um if you're going to live that migratory lifestyle you pretty much pack your whole family up and everybody goes if mm -hmm. you like each other if you don't like each other well that's even easier <laughs> one of you goes and one of you stays yeah. home and that seems to work for a while for people <laughs> but i don't know how well that works long term for everybody uh. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I was listening to you answer all of our questions at the beginning of our interview, the whole thing that kept going through my mind the whole time is, why don't you just move to Arkansas? <laughs> you, can, yeah, well, you can cut out Wisconsin and yeah. then that would solve. So, no, 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 no offense actually, to Wisconsin. It's a beautiful place. Out, I mean, we, <laughs> that would have been the easiest answer, truthfully, for sure. our, from a business perspective. That's exactly what we should have done um, because we could have run a whole school year in Arkansas sure. and then just come to Wisconsin for the summer to do honey production. And from a strictly business standpoint, that is absolutely what we should have done. Um, it just, business isn't always that cut and dry, yeah, you yeah. know, making that decision. So again, People for have us, to live we had well, other yeah. factors that played into it. Um, our family that's here in Wisconsin, I mean, this is where our home is and just, uh, 
kind of deciding where we wanted our kids to go to school definitely was another important factor. All right. So we talked about um, some of the challenges that you have uh, with, you know, the migratory beekeeping operation that you guys have been doing. What are some other logistical and, you know, logistics and challenges that a, a beginner migratory beekeeper might have? Yeah, so some of the things that you definitely need to think about if you're planning on becoming migratory or how to streamline your migratory operation is uh, housing is a big one. Are you going to rent? Are you going to live in a hotel room? Are you going to buy a place in the additional Mm -hmm. states um, that you're traveling to? You know, and certainly depending on how long you're there, that's going to play into it. and how many hives that changes with the scalability too. You know, if you're only shipping two semi loads of bees somewhere, that's very different than 10 loads. Um, Certainly a lot of the bigger operations are going to have properties in the different states that they're going to just because they need a place to store equipment, um, trucks, things like that. Uh, Labor definitely plays into the migratory Mm -hmm. um, beekeeping. We've found with our crews, so we've, in our operation, we've only hired domestic labor, meaning residents of the U.S. Uh, There's a lot of operations that certainly um, employ people from other countries through the H-2A program. We haven't gone that route, so we've found with our domestic labor that two weeks is about the maximum time that any of them want to be away from home. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to logistically plan that out that after about two weeks, you have to sort of figure out a way for them to get home. Even if it's just for a long weekend, um, it seemed that their morale and even just their, um, their work, you just wouldn't get much out of them anymore after two weeks. It it just didn't even pay to keep them there because they really weren't, weren't going to pay attention to what they were supposed to be doing. So that that's a consideration uh, for us. The other main reason that we're trying to become unmigratory is the DOT regulations. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of exemptions when it comes to beekeeping and the DOT. However, the challenge is that each state has its own regulations and rules. And anytime that you get pulled in for an inspection, you're subject to that DOT officer's interpretation of the law. Yeah, of course. Uh, so that can really vary from officer to officer on that. We've been pretty fortunate. We haven't had any major issues with it, but trying to stay one step ahead of it and staying on top of all of the regulations has definitely proven to be a challenge. Um, there's a lot of expense in trucking your bees all over the country. And that's something that people have to decide, is that something you're going to do yourself? Or are you going to hire it out? Um, if you are hiring it out, uh, you need to definitely make sure that your truck driver carries the insurance to cover the bees in case there's a rollover or things like yeah. that. Um, so those are definitely big considerations. Um, some of the other things that we've run into from state to state is making sure that your insurance covers you in both states. Uh, So it can be a little bit challenging if you don't have an actual business address in each state. So Mm -hmm. for example, we were renting a house in Arkansas while we were there. It was way up on a bluff, kind of in the mountains, and we didn't even have a mailbox. Um, (laughs) So there's, while it had an actual address, we couldn't really use it as a physical business address Mm -hmm. um, because that really wasn't Truthfully, that really wasn't where we were running our business out of. Um, We were running our business out of farm fields in about 30 different locations. And Mm. insurance agents don't exactly understand that that, you know, they don't they don't really like to insure that sort of operation. They want a physical location um, and just different things like that. So there's some considerations with that. And then also just making sure that you're paying your taxes in both states. So we've had employees that were based in Wisconsin that traveled to Arkansas. We had employees that lived in Arkansas and were just based there. So you have to pay um, your taxes to those different states depending on where they're working and what locations they're out of. 
Well, I don't know. We both want to ask you a question. Yeah, I'm I like, just want to. I, I, I want to make a comment. You can ask the question. Well, I was going to make a I, comment too. Well, well, let's see. It just seems you go first, Sarah. I, this all sounds incredibly difficult, right? Keeping up with all of that stuff, managing all of that stuff, knowing that you've got colonies in this state and this state, and tra- you know, making sure that your labor is able to get home, making sure that all the rental addresses are appropriate, and that your business licenses up, and then you got to have insurance. Managing your trucks. It just sounds incredibly complex i mean so how do you manage all that <laughs> i guess it's my question how do you how do you deal with that it seems like it'd be something that keeps you up all night every mm-hmm. day uh, it doesn't actually just one day at a time really i mean <laughs> you have to it certainly was something that i knew nothing about my i don't have a business background so i had to really research into it and ask a lot of questions and that truthfully, that's the most important part is asking a lot of questions, um, especially when it comes to insurance and risk management. I would go through scenarios with my insurance agent to make sure that the things that I wanted covered were covered. Mm. Um, certainly, she's great because you know she let me know I have the willpower to do whatever I want for my business. It's her job to determine whether or not that's going to be covered from an insurance standpoint. Um, And so we would just run through scenarios on, you know, what, what happens if my truck truck breaks down in, or gets into an accident in Missouri as we're driving through, am I covered? Am I not covered? Um, Things like that. So we would run through some of those scenarios just to make sure that, that we had the coverage that we needed. So yeah, we just, you know, one day at a time, one issue at a time, that's how you go through it because otherwise it's going to overwhelm you and you're never going to get started with Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And what's funny to me, Sarah, is that we haven't even discussed managing bees. (laughs) This is just the logistics of being a migratory beekeeper that doesn't factor into the, you know, the issue that bees die or they need food or there's this massive requeening event that needs to occur. And what do you do about swarm control and how do you mitigate impacts of pesticide exposure and all of this stuff? And, and, and you know, that's the management half of it. So th- there's the management of the bees, but the management of the business, as you've discussed, is equally important and daunting. So that's that's interesting to hear you talk about all that. Yeah, my well, my my comment earlier was just going to be that we could probably have a segment on every single thing that you just talked about, (laughs) you know, like a whole segment on like the H2A program and, you know, and also and we um, should, we should have these and using a broker versus not using a broker. We'd love to have you, you know, come back and maybe talk to us a little bit about that. But um, you've mentioned insurance quite a bit. And so I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, about the different insurance coverage, because I know you guys spoke about this at the panel and, and I found that information pretty useful. Yeah. So, Um, For us, we have three separate insurance policies for our business. We have a business policy that's going to cover um, pretty much, it's a broad policy that covers a majority of the aspects of the business. So it covers the actual location, meaning the building that we work out of. It covers me for product liability. So the honey that we sell and the candles that we sell, it covers our liability on the bees themselves. So if somebody would be stung on our property and have a allergic reaction, it would cover the liability side of that. Um, the other thing that's important with our business policy that most people don't really think about maybe, or some people don't that they would want to is when it comes to um, commercial beekeeping, we have this influx of honey at one time of the year. So for us, we usually try to wrap up extracting by Labor Day, so in September. So my honey stores that are sitting inside my building in September are very different than what I might have left over, say in May or June, right before we're getting ready to extract. So my business policy is tailored so that I'm covered both at the peak of that and then also it kind of prorates it knowing that there's not that huge amount of honey in my warehouse 12 months out of the year, but maybe for three or four months out Mm. of the year. Um, So just knowing your business and knowing if you have that 
big store or you don't, um, making sure that you're covered. Because certainly if my building burns down in October, I want to be covered for all of the honey that I had for that whole entire year. Uh, we also have auto policies on all of our vehicles. And that's something that if you're doing a migratory operation and you're working in multiple states, a lot of times you're going to have to have different policies, hmm. at least in the main states that you work in and that you're based in. And so sometimes um, you sort of have to shop around. Some people might end up taking out policies from two different companies because their company that they have in one state doesn't even offer insurance in the second state. Um, for us, our insurance agent just got licensed in both states and we picked a policy that would cover us in both states. So that particular company operated in both states, but that isn't always necessarily the case. So you do have to kind of look into that um, to make sure that you're covered in multiple states with that. Uh, at that panel that I spoke on, we actually had a gentleman stand up who unfortunately was hit by a drunk driver while he was moving bees mm. one night. And he said that, and this was a great consideration for people, he said, make sure that your underinsured or non-insured coverage is really high. As a commercial beekeeper, we move bees and we move them at nighttime. And so that's certainly a risk that is out there he unfortunately too he's not the only gentleman that i know that was hit by a drunk driver while moving bees at nighttime so that's definitely something you want to look into making sure that your uninsured coverage is high enough that should you be involved in an accident like that that you're covered for that um, and then we also carry a work comp policy most states are going to have agricultural exemptions um, up to a certain dollar amount or employee number. So for the state of Wisconsin, I think it's like 10, over 10 employees or over $20,000 in wages. Um, that's when you definitely have to carry work comp. We don't fit those qualifications, but we felt it was important for our business that we wanted that work comp policy in place because our employees do um, help machine out bee boxes so they're working with saws sure. and um, different machines in the wood shop they also they're going to be climbing up on semis and strapping them down so you know sometimes and you're sometimes doing it in the rain sometimes you're doing it in the snow it gets slippery mm -hmm. up there on the tarps that should they slip and fall off of there? Just I want. I, know, I was gonna say. So, Amy, well, Amy, we should go open a commercial beekeeper business. <laughs> I'm like, I was just turning. Sarah, into you a make slide. it sound so great. <laughs> Sounds so fun. Well, <laughs> I know this, but uh, this is the not fun stuff that is pretty important because yeah, if you of don't course. think about those things, you're really opening yeah. yourself up to a liability. Again, could you? Yeah, you can run without it. You can do whatever you want. But the risk is great. If yep. you really love your business and you mm -hmm. want to stay in business, you probably need to think about some of these things. Sure. All right. Well, thank you so much. We're going to have to have you uh, definitely come back for another segment. But what I think we want to do, we have questions from our listeners. And so we'll take a real quick break and then we'll go ahead and ask you a couple questions that we have from the audience if you're OK with that. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. All right, listeners, we will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. We are super excited about the question and answer. We, in our past segments, we've basically been doing a chump the chump the stump, and that was typically Jamie, but now we're going to ask. Do you not mean stump the chump? <laughs> wait, what did I say? You said chump the stump. I'm not <laughs> even sure what I would be doing to a stump if I chumped yeah, it. You know what's funny? I was just talking about how awkward I was, so now you all know how my brain and, works. And it's, now we're it just confirming it. <laughs> Okay, question and answer time. So we are here with Sarah Stern. We're back uh, from our last segment with her from Concord Farms in Wisconsin. And so we have four questions from the audience. And I'm still just cracking up about what I just did and very embarrassed about it. But we're just going to go ahead and get leave right it into the that stuff chopping. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not playing that game. <laughs> All right. So the first question, Sarah, that we have, uh, do commercial beekeepers do preventative treatments for American foul brood? 
So I can't really speak on every operation. I can tell you that we don't. Um, we actually haven't even used antibiotics in our own operation in the last five years, I wow. think. Just to be applauded. Um, so so what, what do you do when you see AFB or if you see AFB? Um, if we were to see AFB, those hives would actually be destroyed. Um, I just don't even take the chance with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then any additional hives that would be in that yard would actually be quarantined um, for probably at least four weeks to make hmm. sure that we weren't seeing signs or symptoms of it in any other hives. It's just not something that we mess around with. So if we're gonna, if we see that, um, unfortunately those hives will get destroyed on the spot pretty much immediately. Uh, and it is, it's something we test for and we look for, um, when we inspect every hive, but it's not something that we treat prophylactically. Hey, I, th I actually personally applaud that approach. I think that's really good. So that's cool. So let me ask the next question then. This again came from our, our listeners. So what government programs are available to help beekeepers, especially commercial beekeepers, if there are losses? So, you know, you lose a large percentage of the bees that you're managing. Are there government programs available to help in those scenarios? There is a government program. It's called the ELAP program. And it's something that you could certainly um, look up if that's a route that you're interested in taking, we don't participate in the program. So unfortunately I can't really speak, speak on the benefits or the process of it, but yeah, sure. there is a program out there. It's called the ELAP program. So if you're interested in finding out more information, feel free to look into that further. Yeah. And for you listeners, we actually plan to in the future, have someone from the ELAP program mm -hmm. uh, on two bees in a podcast so that we can talk about this with them as well. Yes, absolutely. So the third question that we have for you, so this was actually asked by multiple people, and I think there was some sort of National Geographic segment that just came out. The first thing they were talking about um, was about theft in the bee yard. So is theft a, a problem for you guys, for your business? For us personally, it has not been an issue. Um, we haven't run into any issues for commercial beekeepers as a whole. The biggest um, place that you're gonna maybe see that theft is in the almond um, pollination. So that's where they're running into it. It just has never been an issue for us. Yeah, you know, in Florida where we're based, there's, there's cases of theft every year and you know, this, the theft of bee colonies or bee equipment, you know, kind of has to be done usually by beekeepers, mm -hmm. right? You know, so, so but yeah, what, what, yeah, what yeah. so often, go? often that's the accusation at least, right? Cause that, that would be who's interested in it. So we see that here in Florida. I've heard of other beekeepers experiencing good so, as well. So it's really good to hear that you, you guys don't have to encounter that. Yeah. So far we've, Thankfully, we've, that's one issue we haven't had to deal with. So yeah, it seems ready. inevitable, but hopefully hopefully you guys can, can make it through without it. So let me ask you uh, kind of our fourth and final question, again, that came from listeners of Two Bees in a Podcast. It's, it's kind of a, a, a different question because it's, it's self-answering, right? Are you concerned about pests and pathogens while transporting bees? Of course, you're concerned about pests and pathogens in bee colonies. But I think this, this, this listener is specifically asking about during the transport process. Are, are pests and pathogens a big problem while bees are physically moving from, you know, in your case, Arkansas out to California or Wisconsin back to California or something like that? So specifically in the transportation of them, no. Um, all of the hives get looked at thoroughly before they leave and get inspected to make sure that they're not, especially for pathogens, we're primarily looking for obviously pests. I mean, there's going to, you know, are the, are bees ever a hundred percent mite free? I mean, sure. no, they're, you know, they're going to have some of that in mm -hmm. there, um, that they're just carrying with them inevitably. But for us during the actual transportation, truthfully, no, we're really not concerned about pests or pathogens. Um, and even when they get to where they're going, I know a lot of people ask, well, aren't you concerned about that in California? Cause if 80% of the nation's bees are sitting in there, I mean, that's a whole cesspool of everything, right? Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is that if you have really healthy bees that you're sending out there, more likely than not, you're going to get really healthy bees coming back. If you don't have healthy bees, 
well, don't expect much of anything but your equipment back. Hmm. That gives me hope. Well, I mean, obviously you should prepare your bees to move because moving Mm -hmm. is a stress. And I'm curious if there are any diseases or pests that would that would be prone to be a problem during transport if they weren't managed prior to mm-hmm, transport. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess Varroa could be an issue, but um, it just seems like transportation wouldn't necessarily set off a pest or pathogen. But, but, but I don't know. This is an area of active research at the moment. So it's neat, Sarah, to hear your answers. I appreciate you uh, being willing to take listener questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. Um, again, everyone, we have Sarah Stern from Concord Farms. Uh, we really appreciate you taking your time and answering some of these questions. I know a lot of uh, beekeepers, especially sideliners, are trying to get into, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do next and what steps to take to become a commercial beekeeper. So we really appreciate having you here. I am officially the most awkward person in the whole world. Uh, hey, Sarah, you've been a great guest. Hopefully we can come back to you in the future. In the future. <laughs> Sorry, I said, hey, Sarah, and hey, Siri picked up on my phone. I hope this uh, is so still let me, recording. Let me, Siri, stop it. I'm talking. <laughs> now we got to wait till Amy quits laughing. <laughs> Just mute my mic. Okay. Hey, Sarah, you've been a great guest. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, you know, uh, hopefully we can come back and have you on again in the future. Sounds great. Yeah, if there's other questions that people want to know about, I'm happy to chime in again. Perfect. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to the following. To our editors, Shelby Howell and Bailey Carroll, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, Tubies in a podcast would not be possible. So thank you. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.